Our second reading this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 9, beginning with the first verse. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before, the gent- before Gentiles and kings and, for- and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Here ends our second reading. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I'm sure you all know this story pretty well. It's one of the best-known stories in the New Testament and certainly the most famous in the book of Acts, with the exception of the Pentecost story. Here you have Paul's great conversion on the road to Damascus. It's even become something that we can say in colloquial English. You know, a road to Damascus moment comes right from this text in Acts 9. It has become for Christians the prototypical, the stereotypical, the paragon of a conversion moment. And it makes you think about conversion. Has anyone ever come to you and asked if you are a converted Christian? 
asked, have you committed yourself to Christ? Have you taken Christ into your hearts? Have you been born again? Anyone ever said that to you? Put that question to you? How is it that you answer that? How do you talk about conversion? What do you say? Well, one thing you can say, one thing you can say is that being a Congregationalist, our tradition knows quite a bit about this concept of conversion. We happen to be experts when it comes to conversion experiences. After all, the Congregational Church traces its roots back to the 16th century and the separatist movement of the 16th century. In that time, you had these separatists. In that time, the Church of England, of course, was divided in a parish system, so... You belonged to a church based on your local geography. And people who were these earnest Christians in the community would go into church and look around and say, well, just because someone's in a geographic area doesn't mean they're necessarily a committed Christian. So these early separatists, one of their things was they wanted to gather together a group of people who actually were committed to following Jesus and following God and doing it together. And that gave rise to this early separatist movement. And within a few short years, one of the things that that developed was when you joined one of the early congregational churches, particularly in Massachusetts in the 17th century, when you joined the church, not only did you have to affirm a church covenant, as Maley and Julie did, as Maley and Julie did, I don't know, is that some sort of emergency orange alert or something? Uh, Amber Alert, yeah, Amber Alert. Uh, well, I hope and pray that whoever's the subject of the Amber Alert is okay. Uh, anyway, in the congregational tradition of the 17th century, <laughs> when you joined the church, <laughs> you affirmed the church covenant, but you also had to get up in front of the church and relay your conversion experience. You had to prove that you had what was called at the time saving faith. So you would get up first, you would be interviewed by the elders, deacons, uh, and the clergy, but then you had to get up in front of the whole church and say, this has been my faith journey. I indeed have saving faith. And only once that was affirmed by the members of the church could you join and then come to the communion table. And in the early days of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, only about a third of the people who were in church were actually full communion members who had done that. But they had to testify to this conversion experience. This was at the center of what it meant. You had to tell your faith journey before others and have that be affirmed as, yes, this is saving faith. But, of course, as time developed, this process became rote and uh, became, uh, you know, less emphasized. And then in the 18th century, you had the first Great Awakening where you had congregationalists led by people like Jonathan Edwards saying, no, you need to have one amazing, fantastical, knock-yourself-down moment of grace that saves your soul. If you don't have that, you're not, a, you're not a real church member. And so this was this huge debate in the congregational churches of the 18th century. What did it mean to be converted? And this was such a big debate, it actually divided churches in New England. You can go to New Haven, Connecticut today, and go to the center green in New Haven, Connecticut, and there are two congregational churches about 150 feet from one another. And, they, and it goes back to this divide between the old lights, those who say, yes, you need a conversion experience, but this is a longer faith journey, and the new lights, uh, where they're like, no, you need that one moment of saving grace. If you don't have that, you're, you're, you're no good. In fact, if you go to United Church on the Green, uh, at least unless they changed it, their website is still www.newlights.org. Um, So, again, embracing the 18th century in the 21st. 
But then, of course, over the next 100 years, Congregationalists spent even more time considering this issue, particularly how much free will do you have or not. They were always suspicious of people who, in in an emotional burst, came down and committed themselves to Christ. Uh, And so Congregationalists delved deeply into what did this mean, more so than any other tradition. They wrestled with what did it mean to be converted and what did it mean to have free will? And then Horace Bushnell, whose name is etched in one of the walkways out there, Horace Bushnell in the 1840s published a book called Christian Nurture and made the case that, no, you don't need to have this one amazing experience. The goal is to be raised a Christian and to know no other reality throughout your life. And that's been influential in the congregational churches ever since then. But trust me, any aspect of conversion and the nature of conversion experiences the Congregationalists have wrestled with as deeply as any other tradition. And again, what we do today, represented by confirmation, is we see faith as a journey. And along that journey, one of the steps of the journey is, of course, confirmation, is joining the church. But that's only one part of it. So yeah, so if someone asks you, are you have you committed yourself to Christ? You can say, well, I'm a Congregationalist. We know all, we, we, we know all about this stuff. And you can go into the long history of it, and they'd probably get bored and walk away. (laughs) But another thing that's interesting to do is actually to look a little more closely at our text here in Acts 9. Because the text in Acts 9 does not line up with what would be seen as the typical arc of one of these conversion experiences. At least in the classic evangelical sense of the word. The classic arc begins with you hearing about God and Jesus having your heart be stirred, you come to be preached to, you hear about the dangers of hell, you try really hard to do it, you fail, you try hard, you fail, you try hard, you fail, you sit in the so-called anxious bench uh, that Charles Grandison Finney would have in the church while he would preach at you, you would try and you fail, and then finally your heart would be opened up and God's grace would enter into it. But there's this whole preparatory stage, but we see none of that in this text here uh, in the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, Our text in Acts 9 Saul goes from, there's no preparatory stuff, he goes from hating the Christians to all of a sudden being like, maybe I should think about this more, more carefully. Not only that, even though the text in Acts 9 says that he started preaching right away, in his own testimony in Galatians, he says he went away for three years before he started on his missionary work. So it's not like an immediate before or after, this is all part of a journey. And indeed, I think this text in Acts 9 mirrors our lives and our conversion experiences pretty well. We go along the journey of faith, but there are certain moments that change that. When I arrived uh, freshman year uh, at Harvard College, one of the professors who was really famous at the time was a guy named Stephen Jay Gould, an evolutionary biologist. And Gould made his name uh, through a theory called punctuated equilibrium, where evolution does not go in a steady stream, but there are moments in the course of the evolutionary history where the environment is disrupted and there's massive changes uh, in evolutionary development. So again, evolution is not just a strand, but it's punctuated by these moments. And the same thing I could say is with our faith journeys. We go along in our faith journeys and we have these moments, these Paul on the road to Damascus moments that are all part of it along our journey. These moments that shift us in a new direction and are all part of the, so- the scope of that journey. I imagine you have had such experiences. And I know that because I have the privilege of listening to some of your faith journeys when we sit down and talk. Your Paul on the road to Damascus moment might have come from some sort of life crisis. Perhaps uh, it, it was through going through a divorce. 
You go through a divorce and all of a sudden you find yourself on the outside of the church. Particularly if you're raised in a conservative church back in the day. And that forces you to reconsider some of your assumptions about faith and church. About what it means to live as a Christian. Or perhaps you're someone who had to experience a death in your family. And that crisis shook you. For uh, my, as, 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 you, as you know from listening to me in the past, my favorite theologian is Paul Tillich. For Paul Tillich, his, his big Paul on the road to Damascus moment was being a chaplain in World War I in the trenches on the Western Front. As he had to bury one young German soldier after another day after day and sit back and say, what am I saying and what does this all actually mean? Does this matter at all? For those who are LGBT, coming out of the closet is one of those moments, particularly if you're raised in the church, where all of a sudden you have to wrestle with, how do you act, what do you actually do with the Bible? How do you interpret the Bible? What lens do you use? But these Paul, the road to Damascus moments are not just from life crises, they also come from intellectual insight. And that's one of the reasons why we here at First Congregational Church embrace adult Christian education so firmly. It's also one of the reasons why I love having different people teach adult Christian education because there's certain things that you're passionate about because you've read certain books or come across certain ideas that have opened your eyes or the scales have fallen from your eyes as this is in Acts 9. I've, talk, I've spoken to some of you who, by reading someone like Marcus Borg, began to see the Christian faith in a new light. Or I remember when I was in Iowa, someone saying that when she learned about other ancient Near Eastern uh, mythologies of creation and of floods that she started to see the book of Genesis in a different light, and that actually opened up her eyes to seeing the entire Bible in a new light. Has there been any book or any idea, theological idea, that's changed you suddenly? After you read the book, your faith is different? For me, Paul Tillich's courage to be opened my eyes in a new way of seeing God, and I haven't seen God in quite the same way ever since. But there are also communal moments that can be these Paul in the road to Damascus times. My high school headmaster, who was an Episcopal priest, talked about how he felt his call to the ministry from Sunday worship. He was in communal worship one day, and there was a moment where God's, where the Holy Spirit came into him and said, you need to go be a priest in my church. That moment changed his life, a moment of communal worship. Maybe it was in service to others. These moments along our way shake us, shape our faith, and that's the way, that's what conversion is all about. But of course, there's another figure in this story for, the, for this morning in Acts 9. It's not just about Saul slash Paul. We see this interesting figure of Ananias. One of the things I love about this text is that it's not just about Paul. You have this person, Paul needs the help of others, in the moment of his experience, in order to be healed. That's what the text says. Here is Paul. He's knocked down. And this, this moment actually shakes him so much that he needs healing. And he needs healing from someone else. How often does that describe sort of these moments that we have where in the midst of these moments, it's someone else who comes into our life who's able to offer healing and grace? If you look around the meeting house this morning, I guarantee you, there are certain people that are going through some aspect of a road to Damascus moment. They're wrestling with their faith in some way, wrestling with their personal life in some way. Something's going on. Some people in this room are going through those moments. 
And those people need Ananias in their lives to help provide healing. Maybe you are that person. But there's one other thing I really love about this text. One other sort of main element that really gets me fired up about this text. Paul, Saul, goes from a place where he is a Pharisee from Tarsus who knows everything about the faith. He knows what he's supposed to believe. He's as certain as can be. And what happens? He goes from a place of literalism and certainty to all of a sudden, maybe I don't know all the answers. There's this moment of grace that comes into his life where he has to approach the world in a different way. And the same thing happens to Ananias. Here's this guy who hears about Paul. And he's like, Paul, Paul, you mean that evil person who's persecuting people? Again, the chapter, uh, just, just before, two chapters before you had the stoning of Stephen. So here's Ananias being like, this guy, Paul, of course he's a bad person. No, I'm not going to reach out and help him. And Jesus is like, no, that's not the way it works. It's about grace. You might be certain that person's not good, but you know what? People change. You need, your job is to show grace. We all go through these various moments in our life where we get our lives shaken and moving into different, different directions. We all have opportunities where we can care for those who are going through those moments. But in the midst of all of it, it's about stepping into that moment, that gracious moment where maybe we have, we have enough humility to realize we don't know all the answers. This past week, uh, one of my uh, friends and colleagues in the ministry, Matt Fitzgerald, who is the minister up at St. Paul's UCC in Chicago, Matt wrote an article for the Christian Century that I read. And Matt was responding to an article that showed up in the New York Times on Easter morning, written by Nicholas Kristof. And Nick Kristof interviewed Serene Jones, who's the president of Union Theological Seminary, and actually was one of my professors when I was in divinity school at Yale. And Serene talked about how uh, she, like at least the, the quotes that were lifted out, were saying, oh, well, she didn't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and that the bodily resurrection of Jesus is not that important for these different reasons. That there's a deeper meaning, and that's really what matters. In general, I tend to agree with Serene in my interpretation of the resurrection. But I really appreciated reading Matt's article this past week, because you know what Matt said? Matt's like, you know what? For you, that the bodily resurrection might not make a difference, but you know what? For someone else, it might. And we live in a postmodern world. And you know what? You were not there on Easter morning. So you don't know what it was like. You don't actually know what happened. Maybe it was different than you expect. And part of being a Christian is having the humility to realize that we might not, we might not actually be right. And again, we, we know this can affect those conservatives over there, but you know what? It also affects us progressives and liberals in here where we become very certain in what we know is true and what's not, and we know that those other people are, are dead wrong, well, maybe they're not wrong. Maybe they, have, maybe they have their own story, their own journey. And you can argue with them, engage in them, try and find the truth. But all through it, what does God call us to do? Have grace. So this is our Easter season. We are in the midst of Easter. It's fun to consider what it means to be converted, and conversion means... Uh, It's fun to consider, and and actually it opens up gratitude to consider some of those moments in our lives that have been road to Damascus moments. It's a call of discipleship for us to be Ananias for those who need it. But I think as Easter people, above all, we need to have 
humility and to approach the world with grace. We don't have all the answers. Our faith journey might take us in different directions. But if we can be open to how God works in our lives and how love can surprise us, then we can be a true Easter people. Let's embrace that calling.